Has your local footy club had a recent clangor or challenge? Well, Amy is here to help. The Amy Clangers for Good competition is back for 2024. This year, Amy are donating $10 for every clangor recorded during the AFL season with eight community clubs in the chance to win up to $15,000. If you want your club to go into the running in 100 words or less, tell us how Amy can help your club bounce back from a recent challenge. Enter now at amy.com.au forward slash clangers for good. That's amy.com.au forward slash clangers for good. T's and C's apply. KO's got you covered for this footy season with every game of every round live and ad break free during play. AFL, here we go. Carlton versus Melbourne with no ad breaks during play. That is going to be an absolute banger. Last time these two uh, got together, well, not the last time, when I was there, I kicked three. Freo versus Swans, live with no ad breaks during play, exclusive in Victoria. And the Hawks versus Saints, live with no ad breaks during play, is going to be an absolute blockbuster. It's a must win for both of these teams. And don't forget the NBA playoffs. Gee whiz, they are going off at the moment. So many big games to mention, and they will be absolutely enthralling. Watch every game live with both Eastern and Western conferences live with ESPN on KO. There's absolutely plenty of room for everyone, so get on board with KO. Now also available on Hubble. Yes, welcome back to Teach Me Please, brought to you by our beautiful friends at Deakin University, home to the world's number one sports science school. This is incredible. I'm really excited for this episode today, ladies and gentlemen, and please welcome to the studio, Hunter Fujak. How are you, my friend? Good. Besides this miserable weather, thanks oh, for having it's me. crazy, man. And you're a northerner as well, so it's sort of... Uh, yes, It's I hard do. for you. I do check the weather app nearly daily. Um, I say this, but I feel like I, I'm on repeat at the moment, but I did live in Sydney for two years, and I sort of nearly identify as a New South Welshman. Like, like, it, yep. that's how passionate I am about the place. I do want to get back there one day. But it is... I found that if you're living in Melbourne or living in Sydney, you just have to not compare. You can't compare the two because they're just different places. That's right. Sydney has its beauties. It's very beautiful. Mm. And there is a there is some beautiful things about Melbourne too. But if you're comparing the two, it's Sydney's going to sort of take the cake. Well, it's so interesting, right? Because I think there's parallels to other countries, right? So in America, I think Melbourne's like the New York and Sydney's like the LA. Or um, Melbourne's like the Toronto and Sydney's like the Vancouver, and mm. so I think you know you see it ha- you say you see it play out in lots of different countries. It's kind of rivalry based on weather and culture, and it's yeah, it's a really defining feature of Australia, right? We're talking about it before because we're going to have a really really interesting chat today about sporting codes and obviously your book Code Wars, which we'll talk about the battle for fans, dollars, and survival. Super interesting, and I know a lot of our people and listeners and and community will love this chat today. But we're talking about um, speaking of sports, Melbourne and Sydney. It's like there's that funny as sort of argument that goes on in people's heads where Melbourne's like, man, we're so much better than Sydney. And then Sydney's like, we don't really care. And it's the same with footy and league where I feel like AFL and um, rugby league, sorry, like rugby league, like we're better than AFL. And I was like, we don't really care, man. It's all good. Just like, just keep doing your thing. 100%. It's one of the things that I think is defined our culture, right? Like we're, we're lucky not to be America where there's really big issues that divide our whole country. Mm. But probably the number one dividing feature of our country is our footy codes, which is, yeah, a pretty remarkable thing. It's crazy. And like, yeah, living in, you know, you look at the, the states and where things sort of break out and even... Sort of to get in today, we'll talk about sporting codes and what makes them successful, what make and you know what they invest in, how they are as big as what they are, and what they do for the community in a whole, which is really cool. Firstly, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and what you study, your PhD, yeah, sure. and how it all came about. 
Yeah, so um, I did a Bachelor of Business um, in Sport Management uh, up in Sydney, uh, did a Master's along the same lines, and then a PhD looking at Australia's really unique sport consumer uh, marketplace, which which led to the book eventually. Uh, Worked in various sort of consulting and sport roles coming into it alongside my academic career, Um, but then focused more so on the academic side because that gave me the freedom to explore some of the interesting curly sort of elements of our sport landscape. And so, you know, I think the thing that, the thing that really got me interested in the PhD, which then has become my work at Deakin since, is just how unique our Australian sport landscape is to anywhere else in the world. You know, and there's a few things to that. You know, firstly, we have four football codes, which in it of itself is insane for a country of 25 million people. You know, we're basically the same population as a place like Taiwan or Romania. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yet we have four football codes, which each kind of do well at various times and, and can survive alongside each other. You know, we have major events like the Australian Open. You know, we're going to host our third Olympics in 2032. You know, China's had one, <laughs> you know, you know, you look at Russia's had few, you know, basically a lot of countries that have way bigger populations, India hasn't had one, right? You know, we're basically only behind America and, and England in terms of how many Olympics we'll have hosted. So we, we're really spoiled for choice in terms of how much sport we have access to. And because of that access and the volume, you know, we can attend at a reasonable price. You know, if you try to go to an English Premier League game, it's going to cost you a heap if you can get a ticket. You know, you can get a day pass to the Australian Open here basically for any given day early on and just show up. You know, you can't do that at Roland Garros or Wimbledon. You know, you basically need to be part of the elite 1% to get access. So we have this really um, unique sport landscape here that we probably take for granted slightly. Um but nonetheless, is is really interesting. It's so interesting, mate. And even like you couldn't have put it better myself. Not that I um, had a PhD in it. That's why you're in today. <laughs> you're the expert. There's so many facets, and I had so many questions even to start going off. And I might be jumping. I'm I'm in your control today because I sort of will yeah. go off the place, and I'd love for you to sort of navigate me through it. Hence the name of the show, Teach Me Please. But it's so interesting. Like one of the things you know I've been thinking about even since we started chatting was around how lucky we are here for sports. So as you said there, we have four, you know, major sort of sports. But even so, that's professional level. Like you look at our grassroots stuff, which we'll talk a lot about later, but then that second tier and local footy, like what rattled me was I went to um, the States a few years ago um, and was sort of talking to someone about, you know, if you don't make the NFL or you don't make the NBA, like what's the VFL or what's the second tier? And they're like, no, there, there isn't one. It's like, you, you don't have that. Like you don't have local football. You don't have really like local leagues or VFL second year competition set up where we do in Australia, like how crazy it is. Mm. And then to another point, you think, well, they go fanatic about like getting, you know, 80,000 people to a college game. It's like, we get that too. Can you imagine if there was no local footy and no second tier competitions, how many people would be attending our sports games? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Obviously, in places like America and the UK, there's more absolute dollars because yep. they're much bigger economies than ours. Uh, but when you scale it back to the size of our population, it's actually insane how well attended our sports are. So I did a study a while back looking at, I guess, the prevalence of fandom, as we're often called a sports mad nation. And basically, 80% of our population has some interest in sport and about 20% reject or are not so inclined. And it must be a terrible place to live if you're part of that 20% who aren't interested in sport. <laughs> Um, because what you do 
most of the year. I don't know uh, how, to, how to escape it. But you know, we're a very sporting country, and part of that is that we actually have the infrastructure built into our sports system. So a place like India loves sport as well, right? But they don't fundamentally have that underpinning structure in terms of the governance of sport to really allow people to participate in the same way that we do. Um, and again, that's where Australia has been surprisingly a bit of a world leader in sport. You know, you just have to think back to something like World Series cricket with Kerry Packer, right? Like we basically launched the professionalism of cricket in this country. Um, you know, we've had volunteers, we've had basically structures in terms of the structure of boards to allow people to participate. And again, whether it's an AFL player or someone playing, you know, in the local league, it's, it basically comes back to a lot of the structures we have in this country that allow it to happen. When you speak about Code Wars, obviously your book that you wrote in uh, COVID Baby um, after completing a PhD. So it's basically your PhD converted into a language that I could understand. Yeah. Um, what do you sort of like want to, what, what's the aim to get out of this this book and what do you want people to understand about sport in Australia? Yeah, I think the key, the key point of the book was really to try to translate, I guess, just how unique our sport landscape is yeah. and, and I guess what makes it so interesting and fascinating. And, you know, as a really interesting example of that, you know, people don't really appreciate that where, you know, rugby and AFL is popular today is actually almost the exact opposite of where it started in, you know, the 1880s, 1890s. So, you know, the there was a rugby school in, in Perth, in WA, and they played rugby for a few seasons before they crossed over to uh, what became Australian Rules. So WA was a rugby state first. Um, Australian rules, as I'll call it Australian rules to keep it simple here, was actually the first code played in Queensland before rugby then flipped them, right? Um, and then down in Tasmania, they played a bit of soccer and a bit of rugby and Australian rules actually came in very late in the piece. And as a really interesting historical note, in about 1880, they basically decided to play a season where they tried each of the three codes. And then at the end, they just took a vote to decide what was going to be the sport in Tasmania. In Tassie? Yeah. So they basically had a season where they gave everything a go. At the end, they said, okay, we're going to have a vote. Whichever we decide is this, the football code we're going to stick with because there's not enough of us to spread. And basically, Australian rules won this vote, won this vote by a single vote. And so the whole reason, right, 140 years later, that Tasmania is an AFL state is because they had a vote and AFL got up by a single vote. One person votes differently for rugby in that meeting, and Tasmania is a rugby state. Right? That's unbelievable. Yeah, especially thinking now of like what's been achieved over the last sort of ten years to get to this state of having their own team. That's right. One vote back in when was it? Eighteen eighteen seventy nine. I'm hoping my memory's right. That's inc- that is unbelievable. And you got a question right. You look back at Tasmanians. Like, did you objectively like were they rewarded for that loyalty? since then to that period to now, you'd argue, well, maybe they probably haven't been rewarded that well, right? Mm. For the loyalty, because every time expansion came, it was into the Northern markets. And obviously only now we're talking about an AFL team. So, you know, if you went back to those people who voted back then and showed them the crystal ball, you know, you'd wonder whether they would feel that they got a good return on that time. Um, What do you think would have happened if they went with league like now, like looking back, like how, like the way that Maybe we'll talk about in a minute, you know, the way that the mm. league operate in versus AFL mm. and, and versus versa and other sports. But what do you think would happen um, with their plan? Well, of course, league didn't really come into existence for another 40 odd years. Yeah. Till so they would have been playing like rugby. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And so, um, look, I think probably inevitably um, the cultural push from Victoria would have probably gotten them back into Australian rules over time. Uh, but once, once Australian rules won that vote, 
literally everything else ceased, right? They basically, there wasn't a rugby club for another like 60 years in Tasmania. So, you know, certainly when you have that kind of first mover advantage, it's, it's probably likely rugby still would have had a pretty big presence. To this day, there isn't, a, there isn't an organized rugby league club in Tasmania. Now, I'm not sure if that's probably hasn't changed in the last year, but I was shocked to find there is literally not a rugby league club in Tasmania. So when we talk about like expansion and code wars, you know, it's pretty wild because, you know, the AFL, all the Australian rules were basically expanding as early as 1906. They were sending, you know, the profits from South Australia and Victoria. They were sending it to New South Wales in terms of like sending footballs and jerseys and whatnot. So the AFL has been trying to expand nationally for over 100 years. And, you know, it's 2023 and, you know, there's still not a rugby league club in Tasmania. So, yeah, it's just such a different strategic mindset to, to thinking about these codes. Looking at the, the Code War stuff as well, maybe we go historically before mm. talking about present, but I remember we were sort of talking um, about, like, the difference between the two codes and, and if there's any other code, like, obviously, soccer and cricket that are relevant to this discussion. Sure. But uh, we're talking about, you know, you just said then how... AFL has always had that sort of growth mindset of like spreading into states and and always investing in grassroots where you look at um, league and at the moment, like uh, round zero, mm. AFL is going to Queensland because the league's going to be in uh, Las Vegas playing their opening round. So like wh- how's that sort of translated over the period of from the beginning to now? Like where have you seen the two sort of play? Yeah, you know, it's I think it's fair to say that historically, since the start, Australian rules has been a very expansionist game. Like they've had this vision basically from inception to being Australia's game. Um, I mean, they've in their marketing, you know, a few decades ago, it was basically Australia's game was the tagline. So they've been basically at it since 1906, essentially, the Australian National Football Council, as it was back then, um, basically trying to grow the game. Now, rugby league has been more insular in its focus um, and basically stuck to focusing in Queensland and New South Wales. And then what's really interesting is if you think about soccer in this discussion is that they've basically probably been the number, number two code everywhere. And so, you know, you'd think mathematically being second everywhere versus first and fourth, you know, maybe mathematically that works out quite well for you, but it actually doesn't because even though soccer has always been historically popular because we've had this migration flow in particular, you know, in the southern states in particular, Australian rules has been really good at being strategic, basically locking soccer out of grounds, you know, having politicians who are on the side of Australian rules. And that's not necessarily a value judgment. You know, when I teach my students and I say, well, you know, if you're Coke, are you going to help Pepsi? Or if you're Samsung, are you going to help iPhone? You know, of course you're not. So, you know, there's a lot of criticism, particularly amongst soccer people that, you know, AFL types have always tried to sort of control the code and and sort of keep them suppressed. And that's objectively true, right? Like they've been locked out of grounds, locked out of media, um, because there is some fear in AFL circles that, you know, should soccer rise, it would come at the expense of AFL. Um, so there have been stuff, things that have happened historically, like the ground elements and, you know, some of the cultural decisions that are made in media that have probably not worked in soccer's favor. What do you look at as a, you know, maybe we start really broad, but what do you look at when identifying a sport on what's like important for that? sport to be successful like is there sort of three or four things that you mm. sort of go through to analyze them i think that's a million dollar question and i think that's only getting more important today than it's ever been historically you know i use the example of rugby right when rugby went professional in 95 96 they made about um the afl made about four times as much revenue as rugby at the national level it's now out to about eight times so the 
that whilst they're making more money now than they did historically, the gap is growing between the biggest sports and the smaller sports. And you know, once the AFL kick into their new deal, six hundred and fifty million dollars a year, you know, chances are the AFL centrally are going to make one point two billion dollars centrally, and that might be ten to twelve times bigger than rugby mm-hmm. or, or football Australia. So the the gap between the biggest and everyone else is kind of growing. Um, and so the central question becomes: Well, what, what do you actually do? Like, what is what is the thing that can lead you to be a popular sport? You know, I'm not sure how much you follow netball, but they're in a huge hole at the moment. They've got the civil war with players and administrators. Yeah, um, can you explain that? Because that, that's re- I, I really know the basics of mm-hmm. it, but it's incredibly interesting. Yeah, so we've kind of gone through this period where lots of sports have gone through big fights between their player associations and head, head office. You know, netball's still going through theirs. Rugby league went through a bitter one as well that lasted the better part of two years to get a bargaining agreement done. The AFL women have felt really aggrieved historically based on how they've been treated by the AFL around the length of their season and whatnot. Um, And even the Matildas uh, boycotted um, a few years back um, a tournament, I think, in in America. So we've had more of this unrest. The, The netball case comes down to the fact that the sport um, seemingly is not well financed, resourced. They're struggling financially. Um, so Netball Australia wants to sign a collective bargaining agreement with the players. That's more or less just the status quo deal. Um, whereas the players want a share of revenues, basically, and to basically share in, I guess, any additional revenues that the sport might make collectively. Whereas Netball Australia are kind of saying, well, you know, we need to hold on to those revenues to pay down some of our debts because our sport is struggling. So one of the big challenges is that you know, there's not a lot of clarity around just how profitable or unprofitable mm. the league is. Um, whereas the players, obviously, if they're going to get a share of the revenue, you need to know exactly what the league is achieving. So they're a bit of an impasse. There was an incident, you know, just you know a few days ago around um, the fact that, you know, there was a legal letter sent saying the players had to attend their awards nights, which is never a good sign. So that created a bit of publicity as well. So... They're in a lot of trouble, and I think rugby union as well are in a lot of trouble. And then to come back to your original question yeah, around, you know, what do you look for for a sport? Fundamentally, at the professional sport level, what you really want to see is your sport embedded in the broader culture. And obviously, if we look at the AFL, you know, you have you don't just have a grand final, right? You've got a grand final week, you've got a grand final parade, you've got wall-to-wall coverage. Um, so it's really all the stuff outside of the the single event itself. You know, you look at Formula One, right? It's not just a race that happens and people show up on the day. There's a whole, there's a whole big um, entertainment industry around it. Drive to Survive has made it go nuts, mm. for instance. So I think what you need to see when you're the absolute biggest type of sport is that it's not just about what happens on the field. It's all the cultural stuff around it. And another good example of that is, you know, there are Wallabies who play for, for you know, in rugby union. And yes, they're internationals. But a lot of people wouldn't know them if they walked down the street, right? You know, in AFL, it's not just about reporting how many kicks Dustin Martin makes, right, or how many goals he kicks. You know, there's a whole bunch of people who are interested in the life and story of Dustin Martin. You know, he's a character outside of just the field of play. Um, you know, you've got guys like Reese Walsh in the NRL who are characters outside of just the field. And so your truly big sports transcend just being a thing on the field to being a bigger sort of cultural um, story essentially. Mm. KO's got you covered for this footy season with every game of every round live and ad break free during play. 
AFL. Here we go. Carlton versus Melbourne with no ad breaks during play. That is going to be an absolute banger. Last time these two uh, got together, well, not the last time, when I was there, I kicked three. Freer versus Swans, live with no ad breaks during play, exclusive in Victoria. And the Hawks versus Saints, live with no ad breaks during play, is going to be an absolute blockbuster. It's a must win for both of these teams. And don't forget the NBA playoffs. Gee whiz, they are going off at the moment. So many big games to mention, and they will be absolutely enthralling. Watch every game live with both Eastern and Western conferences live with ESPN on KO. There's absolutely plenty of room for everyone, so get on board with KO. Now also available on Hubble. Could you explain that this is, uh, to be completely honest, something that I'd never quite got my head around. It's quite embarrassing to even admit, but you look at in the um, US and, and even in Australia with the league, we were chatting about this before and I didn't really quite get it, but the US private teams like are owned by certain people in rugby league like they're an ent- they're their own entity being the league but they're still privately owned like mm. you know we got like russell crowe owns like the rabbitos I, yeah. I don't know if he still does but i still just remember that but then in the afl like it's it's everything's owned by the afl like how does that work with mm. like who is making the money where does that go is it like yeah, where, yeah. Where, what's the goal with that? Like, what's their goal, really? Obviously, it's to make money, but who's getting it? Like, is just stay in the game and reinvest mm-hmm. back into... It's a really important point. And so, <laughs> I guess I'd start by saying, well, in Australia, it's not actually just purely about making money. Mm-hmm. So, if we start with America or even the English Premier League, for instance, right, which a lot of listeners would, I'm sure, follow as well, you know, those teams are all privately owned in leagues that are privately owned. And in those situations, you know, the profits or losses entirely sit with owners and their sole purpose is to basically win premierships in their respective leagues. And those leagues are owned by the teams inside the league. So you look at the NBA or the NFL, the league itself is owned by the clubs and the clubs are privately owned. So ergo, if you've got 32 owners of the clubs, those clubs all essentially own a slice of the league itself. Um, And they exist entirely privately for private purposes. Australia is different because our AFLs and our NRLs, you know, our Nepal Australias, these are sort of not-for-profit organisations. They don't exist purely just to make profits um, because they're not just there to basically run competitions. They're also there to basically be involved in junior development, for instance. So when the AFL signs a massive broadcast deal, not all that money goes out to the clubs, not all that money goes out to the players. Some of that money is kept in-house and then that goes into your Auskick, mm. into you know all your little participation programs to fund junior development offices to get... TH, like- league or, that's yeah. right so the the when you know when the afl NRL, nrl announce a really big broadcast or sponsorship deal it's not just about making a profit on that for the teams it's actually about funding the entire ecosystem and so when we look at like jobs in sport it's not just you know the big buck jobs it's a lot of the jobs that are hands on the ground you know working with kids getting them to catch kick run um you know junior representative teams like you mentioned so that's that's a really big difference and so you can you can still have teams that are individually owned privately like russell crowe melbourne storm is another good example owned by a consortium of relatively wealthy people um and in rugby increasingly you know the the perth team are owned by andrew forrest uh, second richest australian so you can still have individually um privately owned teams but they still participate in leagues that are centrally run by the national sport organization. And that organization has objectives beyond 
just the league. Um, whereas the NBA, you know, they have nothing to do with putting on a USA team in the Olympics. They they don't really care fundamentally if kids are playing basketball. That's left to a separate organization. Whereas the NBA is just interested in the entertainment product. It's and that probably goes back to that point earlier we we're making about the US and, and Australia. Not that I oh know we're talking about Australia today, but I think it's just such an it's something that we take for granted. I think coming through because, like you said with the US like there's no Oz kick for basketball or, or mm. NFL like the colleges probably have to take care of that there's no second year competitions there's probably not as many jobs mm. going in sport as well because of all these factors even though they're so much bigger than us yeah um it's really lucky that that's how it's set up in Australia. Yeah, well, ultimately the main beneficiary is everyday people, yeah. right? Um because certainly things like Auskick are fundamentally subsidized yeah. right by the AFL when they make hundreds of millions of dollars a portion of that goes back into I guess covering the costs of getting kids to be able to play for instance and that's partly in self-interest as well right it's not just a charity for the for the AFL you know my own research shows that if you play a certain sport as a kid you are more likely to be a fan of that as an adult right so one of their big strategies in particularly in new south wales and queensland is if you can get kids playing auskick the chances of them becoming a swans fan or a lions fan um, becomes way higher right because you've got exposure to this foreign sport that you other otherwise wouldn't have had so you know i jokingly say to people that if i worked at the afl I'd probably just give away free money to people in Queensland. I'd go up to a Queensland family and say, if you've, if you've got two kids and they play Auskick, we'll give you $200 cash because you will eventually get that money back in terms of customer lifetime value once that kid becomes an AFL fan for the rest of their life. Mm. Um, so there is definitely still very much a health, you know, social benefit, but it does also link back to sort of creating fans of the future. So cool. And you see that with like obviously Auskick and then the, the massive sort of rise of um, AFLW as well and the investment that so many new like young girls are being able to play Auskick and go through a junior competition now. Like mm. that's going to not only one, increase the AFLs when the game grows, but two, get all, a lot more women involved in, in footy. Oh, 100%. You know, seeing the actual gameplay on the field evolve over that period of time has been really interesting to mm. watch, right? When you when we're in those first couple seasons, you, you had a lot of cross-code athletes. And I saw it myself. You know, I was involved in a Premier League New South Wales netball club, second high, basically the highest level before you're into the formal netball professional system. And, you know, we had girls who were basically talking about going to the tryouts for, for AFLW. Um, and they were cross-coders from various sports. And you sort of saw in those first couple of years, there wasn't necessarily great technique because these were athletes who hadn't had a full junior development pathway. And in a lot of ways, it was quite fun to watch, right? Because one of the criticisms I have of professional sport is that it becomes so structured because all these kids learn through the same systems. They learn technique the same way. So everyone's kind of, feel, it kind of feels in every sport, all these kids start learning to play the same way. But then you had this AFLW come and you just had this explosion of different ways of playing and styles because they weren't all coached the same way as kids. Mm. And so now that it is professionalizing and you're starting to actually get these 18, 19 year old draft picks who've kind of had a whole junior development pathway, you can see them starting to play a little bit more like in the formal AFL structure, yeah. which is like a good good thing on one hand because it's great that those systems are in place, but in a way it makes me a little bit sad that it's kind of formalizing and becoming a homogenous product. Like oh, the don't AFL. worry. The AFL will just change rules to, you know, they just change 10 rules a year, which yeah. is, that they'll work it out somehow, which annoys the absolute shit out of me. But I think, yeah, it's, it's going it's going awesome like watching what the girls have been able to do over this this short period of time is, is pretty incredible and like i put it down to 
um, I think today we're sort of, sort of talking about it. Like, look at what this is going to do for the next 10, 15 years of women's sport in Australia, not what's mm. happening right now, albeit be incredible, but what's going to happen. Like, I, I think about my game of golf, right? Mm. I started golf as like a 27-year-old, uh, you know, hack, um, bit, you know, unfit. And I was like, if I had a fucking started this when I was like six or seven, I would have been a pro. Like I, well, I wouldn't have been a pro, but I would have been a lot better than I am. So it just shows how much those junior pathways and getting into something earlier can actually like really help you. Like I've got a young son at the moment. And as soon as he can walk, man, he's going to be doing everything. Yeah. Just because like if you don't pick up a few things when you're a kid, it's very hard once you've already set your sort of rhythm to actually learn and get better at things and refine mm. it. Well, if I can give you one tip, it'll be that there's a bit of research that shows in sport, basically outside of golf, you want to be a generalist rather than a specialist. Yeah. Um, so make sure they're playing lots of different things. And, you know, coming back to the whole cold, cold, Code Wars thing, it's it's interesting. Some of those regional towns like Wagga Wagga disproportionately produce heaps of our athletes. Yeah. And the reason for that fundamentally is because they're exposed to lots of different sports. So they play a bit of Aussie rules. They play a bit of rugby, a bit of league, a bit of cricket. Um, and because they have kids grow up in these country towns playing a bit of everything, it gives them kind of a multifaceted skill set that then helps them become elite in one particular sport when they choose whatever that sport is. That's 16, super 17. interesting. Whereas the kids who just play one thing from five through to whatever have far lower chances outside of you know certain things like golf where it's better to just commit to it. Yeah, yeah. it's it's really interesting because like I was pretty much like that as a kid just from like school played footy and did a lot of like skating when I was younger. And I think, you know, that has now hampered me because I never played cricket. Like I seriously can't throw a ball, mm. like a very just like not coordinated in anything else. Whereas sometimes people assume because I played football um, at somewhat of a high level that you're good at other things. I'm like, no nah, man, like, I literally can't do fucking anything. Yeah. Like at all. Well, and this is what's so interesting in different sports <clears throat> is- You should move to Wagga. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> great place. Yeah. Um, but there's an NRL athlete called Halumi Olakalatu, and he basically is now one of the best second rowers in the world. But he wasn't even, he didn't even grow up playing rugby league. <laughs> yeah. He basically showed up to a training session because he had a friend or a brother or someone, someone else who he was with was the contracted junior and he was just there because his friend was there. They saw this big guy, gave him a go, and now he's just one of the best back rowers in the world. And what did he do? Was just as a kid, just played everything, or I don't know his backstory. He, mu he must have played, up. but he was just physically so imposing that yeah. he was able to just to basically become excellent late in the piece. Whereas, like I'm much like you, I played a few different things like tennis, squash, yep. uh, rugby league, touch. But the, the one that I think is hardest is soccer. Like, if you don't grow up... 100%. That touch, like yeah. that, like, first touch. And, yeah, yeah, I used to bag the hell out of guys. They're like, man, soccer's the hardest sport in the world. And I was just like, nah, footy is. But you look at it now, you're like, nah, man, soccer's... soccer's. I think golf's the hardest sport in the world, but soccer is just up there. Like, when you see the best people in the world playing soccer, you're like, wow, mm. that's impressive. And this is why, you know, people with the whole Code War stuff is people have individual preferences, right? And so I guess people ask me, well, what's the best sport? And I... <coughs> That's a good question. I should probably ask you that. <laughs> it's a pretty philosophical thing, right? I don't really think there is fundamentally a best sport, right? Like the beauty of the system is that people have different types of um, enjoyment, right? They like different things in different sports. So I don't think there fundamentally is a single way to say this is the best sport. I mean, I think AFL is structured really well as a, as a media product, right? Because it's, it's quite free flowing, but it's got enough intermissions to insert ads, right? So it's a really good TV product, but it's also a really good in-person spectacle. So I think it's, AFL is a really well-structured sport, whereas rugby union is probably handcuffed a little by 
really old rules that they struggle to change because they're a world sport. Um, so I think they struggle. But overall, like I think the beauty of the sport ecosystem is that there are people who love volleyball. There are people who love lawn bowls, mm. you know, whatever footy they choose. Um, and we're lucky to have that diversity. I think it's interesting as well, like participation versus viewership. Yeah. Like there's sports that I'll play and not watch. But then there's things that I'll watch and not play. Yeah. Is that is that like a study that's ever been done or is it quite hard to sort of like actually yeah. get that data? Because well, like I love golf, but I, I don't watch it. Hmm. Whereas I watch footy, but I don't play it anymore. So. Well, the data definitely exists. I think one of the interesting things, right, is that a lot of people have said historically, oh, you know, football, soccer is the most participated sport in the country. Like it should be this big, you know, the A-League should be huge. Is it really? Yeah, easily. Um, the most participated sport, yeah, soccer? by far. And it has always been so. Just because everyone, like, it's quite broad across Australia. Well, firstly, it's probably one of the few sports that wasn't so strongly male or female, yep. right? Like netball, the number one female sport with very small male base. Footy codes, obviously, the other way around. You know, soccer has historically had quite a large amount of female participants while still being the biggest male participant base. So just a really big historical base of participants. Obviously, it's a relatively safe sport compared to a contact football code uh, as well. Um, so, you know, it's always had this huge participation base. So people say, well, why isn't the A-League popular? And then netball. Netball is in the same position, huge fem- female participation base. But, you know, super netball continues to struggle. So whereas rugby league historically has had a very small participation base, but obviously one of the biggest media products in the country. So I think sport administrators have kind of incorrectly presume that one should equal the other when really they are separate things, right? I love watching NRL, but I would not like to get bashed (laughs) playing rugby league. And I grew up playing it and you either have the mindset for it. I think it's probably the same in Aussie rules as well, right? You either have the mindset for the contact and and playing it or or you don't. And so, you know, I'm sure given how many people watch AFL, there's a lot of them who are perfectly happy sitting in the stands Mm -hmm. and, and not on the field. Media coverage of, of sports, super interesting as well. Like how much does that come into play? Uh, you know, like how do games get on television? Mm. Is it supply and demand and like other teams trying to get into mainstream? Like what what do you think sort of the biggest thing around media at the moment? You spoke about that massive deal before that the AFL yeah. was signing. You know, so fundamentally, you know, we've only got three or four really big media organisations in this country. Fundamentally, the, the underlying driver is popularity, right? If a sport is popular, it's going to generate viewers or subscribers. And that's what your 7, 9, 10 or Foxtel really want, fundamentally, is, is eyeballs. Um, and so... The interesting thing here is it's sort of like a self-perpetuating culture, right? Like if you're a really popular sport, you get a really pop, you get a really big TV deal, mm. which means you're on TV every Friday night, Sunday afternoon, every game's live on 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 demand on Foxtel, and because you're already on in those time slots, it kind of perpetuates, right? Because if you're a new person, either you're just a kid or you're a migrant or whatever it might be, you see this on TV and then you become a fan of it, and it becomes very sort of self-perpetuating, and when you're not one of those big sports that aren't on channel seven every friday in winter um and you don't have that exposure well how do people find out about you how, mm. how do people become fans of your sport? so it's a really difficult situation if you're not one of the big you know three or four sports whereas if you are one of those big sports it really becomes somewhat of an easy sell um in some ways, selling AFL media rights is like the easiest job in sport because you have this wildly popular product that everyone wants because it's one of the few things that really guarantees eyeballs. And especially now with Netflix and all these you know, 
providers, streaming providers, you know, there's not really that much content left that seven, nine, and ten can really rely on to get eyeballs. So it really is just sport and news. How does it like with those sports? Probably specifically here because they have more of those broadcast deals like um, NRL and AFL. Where are they majority sort of making their money? Is it broadcast deals, sponsorship? or like fan revenue. Sure. I'm not sure where to break that into. Is it a fan revenue? Or- well, the fan is really all the revenue, right? Yeah, because true. it's, you know, whether it's, it's everything. TV or, yeah, and even sponsorship, right? Like you need, the more fans you have, the more valuable the sponsors are. So, you know, if you look at your AFL, NRL level revenue before you get to the clubs, yep. you know, it's about 40% of the central revenue is TV rights. You know, the, the NRL has historically been as high as like 60% reliance mm-hmm. on TV money. Um, but usually it's, you know, in that 40 to 50% of central revenue will be TV money. Um, then your next biggest slice will be, you know, your sponsorship revenue. Typically, you know, something like the Toyota Premiership in AFL is, you know, literally an eight-figure dollar number. Right. So they're really big figures. Um so sponsorship's really big as well. One of the uncomfortable ones that we don't like to talk about so much is around gambling revenue as well. So these big leagues get what what we call a product fee, and that means that they get a small slice of every bet of the um, bets placed on their sport. Wow. Um, and they don't like to talk about it so much because you know they're trying to be socially responsible organisations. But I didn't know that. Yeah. So there was a bit of a big expose on Four Corners a little while back around it, but essentially. Um, as we gamble more, these and our big leagues get these percentages as product fees. It's it's a growing source of revenue. Um, I don't want to speak out of school here, and I, I hope this makes sense as well. But like, is that? Do you ever see that changing? Like, I don't personally. Mm. Um, one because you know I've I've been really close to a lot of people that have had gambling issues. Personally, I don't work with a lot of gambling um, companies myself. Well, I've never had through the podcast because it's just not something that I, I actively <clears throat> do. But um, I always think too like. I don't think it's ever going to end because even the government probably make too much money off it as well. Yeah, well, it's it's a tough one. Um, so we're in a period um, where the regulations are being reviewed at the yeah. moment. And so I think it's pretty likely that the amount of advertising on television is going to be dialed down yep. a lot um, because, you know, people are very unhappy with the, the saturation of advertising. And it's one of the rare things where, you know, Liberal and Labor seem to agree on. So you gotta take those wins when you can, when you actually all agree on something. So I think the rules will change around advertising on TV. Now that's important, right? Because if a, if a company is, is sinking $50 million into TV advertising, and then that money gets taken out because they're not allowed to, then Channel 7 obviously can't necessarily make as much money on their broadcast rights. If they're not getting as much money in, then they can't afford to pay the sport as much, mm-hmm. right? So when Seven did their deal with the AFL, they were probably projecting how much they could pay based on how much their advertising was worth. But if the value of advertising changes because you know wagering companies can't can't advertise, then that's kind of like a downstream risk for the sports. Yeah. Um, you know, I think more broadly, there will always be a gambling culture here, right? Like, you just look at the Melbourne Cup race that stops the nation. Yes, it's kind of declining in popularity, but the actual betting volume on it is actually relatively steady. Um, and we have the most per capita gambling losses in the world. It's actually wild. Um, we're the number one country per person in terms of gambling losses. So something- We've just got to realise we're not very good at gambling. Well, and this is the great irony of the NRL going to Las Vegas for their opening round that, yeah. that you mentioned earlier, is that Peter Volandi is the boss of the code, has explicitly said this is about gambling revenue, right? They don't necessarily 
they're not they're not super bothered seemingly about creating a new the new league or anything in Las Vegas or Los Angeles. They're not so much interested in developing the sport in the same way the AFL is interested in Auskick in in New South Wales and Queensland. They just want people to see this as a media product they can gamble on, so that they can get future gambling revenues out of the US because that market's opening up. So. Um, it's actually pretty wild to have a sport openly acknowledge that they're literally shifting shifting their opening round for the sake of gambling revenue. And is that like US dollars? US dollars, yeah. yeah. So right. they're, they're, get... they're liberalizing their gambling state by state in the yep. US at the moment. Yep. And so it's a pretty wild thing to watch because essentially once the first state legalized it, they started making lots of tax revenue on it. And then every other state looked and, to do it. and the dominoes fell pretty quickly after that. I know we're not talking about this today, but that was actually something that rattled me too, how you know, you, you look in movies all the time and um, when you watch like an old film in the US and there's like, they talk about loan sharks and mm-hmm. stuff like that where you'd put the bet on under a restaurant or something like that. It's because they didn't have apps like we do. Like, I think because we grew up here in Australia, we just think that gambling's so accessible. Yeah. I remember going to South America a few years ago as well and there was like, I was in um, Argentina and there was like an island off Argentina where you can't gamble, none of your apps work, but you can go onto this island and then your apps work and you can gamble on the island off (laughs) Argent. It was just, I couldn't believe it. And that's where, you know, this comes back to, again, beyond what we can talk about today, but, you know, the choice fundamentally is if there's an activity that people want to do... They're going to do it. They're going to do it. Exactly. So do you you regulate it in some way that's safe and you might be able to collect central tax revenue or do you push it underground? Um, And so... That applies to many things beyond sport, but um, yeah, it's I guess one of the decisions we have to make as a society. Yeah, oh, look, I don't think that we're going to get to an answer for it. It's it's really like as you said before, yeah. if you take that revenue out, that's probably going to affect grassroots football. State like there might be losses of like jobs and stuff in those levels too. So it's sort yeah. of hard to. That's right, and that's it's where not, it's different to the yeah. NBA, right? Whereas the NBA signs a deal that that profit from all those DraftKings or whatever it is is going back to already very rich people. Here, at least, it goes into an ecosystem that feeds back into state associations mm. that feeds into kids playing football. So at least there's kind of some residual benefit. What do you think about um, this? Is just a broad question now. Like we've seen lately, I think it was with um, obviously netball, which was a cultural um, decision around not wanting to be sponsored by a mining company. Yeah. Um, you know, which we can totally understand. Then there was in cricket, there was the stuff around. Um, the players not wanting, I think, for the same thing. It was yeah. like the mining companies and gambling as we're talking yeah. about these sort of stuff. What do you think about players being like, well, no, we don't want to be sponsored by those mm. um, organisations? Do you think it's sustainable? Like, is it actually possible in sport to have that? I think it is a really vexed issue. Like, it's yeah. a really difficult one, right? I think we're more broadly looking at the ecosystem, we're seeing more athlete activism, which mm. is great. I think... Um, it is it is very good for athletes to have their sort of individual voices and be, I guess, mindful of social issues at that individual level. Where it gets difficult, obviously, is that in a team environment. And Australians are very like egalitarian society, right? Like you 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 watch NF, you watch the NFL or whatever, and just like ridiculous celebrations when any one individual yep. scores a touchdown, right? Yep. So culturally, they're very individualistic. So for them, it's natural for their players to have these individual brands and be individual activists. For us, it's a bit of more of an uncomfortable situation. We're not yep. used to that in team sport. Um, so it is good that athletes are becoming more mindful. But it is very difficult to, to find that balancing act, right? Because fundamentally, the players are paid in our model based on a share of central revenue. So the question then becomes, well, how much say does this stakeholder get? You know, if, if a player chooses to not carry the sponsorship of that brand, you know, should they in theory get a wage cut? Because that some of that revenue is 
derived from, you know, mm. some of their wages derived from that revenue, right? So I think there's a fine line. Um, I know if you're a sport administrator, you kind of want your athletes to basically just be suppressed and keep them quiet and let you make all the decisions. But I think increasingly athletes are going to be quite vocal, I think, mm. in expressing uh, their views. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a super complex sort of issue, isn't it? Like around, it's not really an issue, it's just a thing that's sort of happening at the moment. But yeah, I don't know what the what the answer is. It's sort of, it's yeah. hard. Like, especially, you know, if you're in sort of cricket, I suppose, which is an industry making like a lot of money, mm. but a big sponsor is something It's like, well, you would think maybe then you just don't get paid from that. Yeah. But. And I think that, you know, in a diverse society, that's going to be something we, we have more challenges with. I think it was Usman Khawaja who didn't want... Or there was a leg spinner, I forget his name, uh, in the national team who forewent the VB logo, I mm-hmm. think, because of Islamic <coughs> backgrounds. Alcohol, yeah. And alcohol. But, you know, and you, you look more broadly, right? Athletes having an individual voice. Like, look what happened with Israel Folau, right? Like a devout mm-hmm. Christian, ba- genuinely expressing his personally held beliefs. But his personally held beliefs obviously came at a cost to other people's beliefs. And so, you know, how do you, how do you reconcile the individual athlete's right to, um, you know, there was an AFLW player who didn't want to be involved in pride round, for yep. instance, for religious reasons. So how do you, you know, it's, it's sort of like a microcosm for broader society is like, you know, things are getting more complicated. There's not always a right or wrong. There's conflicting interests involved. It's, yeah, it's just a tricky time. It is. A, you know what? You've got a fantastic vocabulary and you'd hope that being like a, having a you know phd but i think like it really helps be able to articulate these things there's so many things that you want to say but like without the right language it's quite hard to like actually articulate it but great stuff you did a great job there um winning games first being a business Mm. what what do you where do you see that sort of fitting into into sport like for example at the moment i know we're not talking um we're talking about clubs not at a at a um sorry we're talking about sports and codes not at a club level but you look at a club like afl um West Coast Eagles, and this year they had like an incredibly bad year, like one yep. of the worst years ever, but still one of the richest clubs in the yeah. AFL, um, which, you know, people go like, that's impressive. Like, how does that work? And mm. I think even for me, I've always sort of found, again, at a, at a club level, the best businesses, um, the best clubs, like they're a business at the end of the day, and as well as they're administrated, they'll eventually turn around and become a good club. Whereas you look at the clubs that might be playing well, but they might not be a great business then that they might fall off in the end um, yeah. is it the same with codes yeah look i think it's it's such an interesting thing it's one of the really unique things about working in sport um you know if you work at cadbury or schweppes or tesla you know if you work in any kind of general business you might have a production line and if you're the manager you can be re- reasonably confident that this batch of you know mars bars is going to be consistent with the next batch mm. of mars bars so when you're the marketing manager of one of those businesses you have a lot more control over what you're doing. Um, whereas when you're a, a marketing manager at a football club, you know, you might be working for one of the best clubs mm. that's, you know, is probably going to win a premiership or you might be working at a club that's probably going to get the spoon. And so it just creates such a different challenge working in sport when you don't have control of what happens on the field. You know, every every club aims to obviously be profitable fundamentally because that's what you need to do to be mm. a going concern. Um, and you look at the clubs that are perpetually making losses and having to reach out to, to their members and it's not where you want to be. Mm. Um, but underlying a lot of that is culture, right? Organizational culture. I think that's kind of like where where you're heading with that around having really good businesses is, you know, it's not a coincidence that certain clubs seem to 
perpetually be at the top and then other clubs perpetually at the bottom. Um, and that comes back to the sort of organization you have. And so, yes, you can have great superstars on the field and that's probably still the most important thing is to have great on-field talent. But really successful clubs have really strong off-field talent. And so that's where we've seen sport management develop in the last 30 years, right? Like if you go back before the 1990s, 1980s, a lot of clubs were still run like kitchen table operations by passionate individuals. You know, as money came into sport, the back rooms of sport developed. And really what distinguishes um, really good clubs from weaker ones or even codes is really that off-field talent. And so that's where a lot of the battle is now, is just to make sure you get the off-field talent right to really allow what happens on the field to progress. Mm. What about like the um, the goals of of those codes as well, business-wise? Mm. Is it, I know we are saying before about like them being um, a part of a non-for-profit, so like profit-wise, does that go back to the governing body, like say mm. league or AFL, if they're, where does the money so sure. ebb and flow? How does that work? And what's their yeah. goal, really? Like Besides on-field success, what's like a goal of a sporting code? Well, fundamentally, every single national sporting organisation, whether it's the AFL through to Hockey Australia, Volleyball Australia, Lawn Bowls, whatever it might be, the goal of every single national sporting organisation is to fundamentally uh, further their sport. Now, what that usually means is to, I guess, fundamentally make their sport more popular, firstly at a participation level, mm. and then anything beyond that. So really, every every sport org is largely the same in their orientation, which is to basically widen the scope of their sport, usually through participation at the community level, and then when a sport gets professional, obviously in terms of eyeballs and attendances and whatnot. But really, it's I guess that's where the sport market gets quite competitive, is that they're all trying to do the same thing, which is to get more people interested in them. And obviously, as one grows, the others might shrink, and it becomes a bit of a battle. What have you sort of found over the last sort of time have you been sort of studying with Code Wars and, and everything alike in, in this sort of industry that's been the biggest sort of positive moves you've seen by sporting codes and some of the biggest blunders you've seen by some sporting codes? Hmm. It doesn't have to be even the big four. It could be like any sort of like obviously the rise of um, football at the moment with soccer of like the Matildas and, and the World Cups of like. But then again, we are speaking about it earlier, you look at maybe a blunder. I'm not sure if it isn't or not, but around how expensive it is for young kids to get into soccer. Like I've yep. heard like that it's like sort of three thousand to four thousand dollars to even sign up to a club. All right, we'll start with the positives. So I think I think one of the big successes we've seen is I guess sport increasing at the top end of town. I guess realizing that sport is in the entertainment industry. Mm. And I think we're in this period of transition now where we've always kind of known that attending sport, watching sport is kind of like a leisure activity and whatnot. But I think we've seen it really crystallize in the past decade, just how much it is just an entertainment product. And so you can look at something like Drive to Survive. Like the amount of people I've met who are now madly into Formula One, yeah. thanks to this show, which I haven't seen myself. Have you not seen it? I haven't watched oh it. Oh my God. I haven't watched it. Um, what I, the fuck? Obviously, like, you know when you, you miss the first wave and then you think it's too late for oh, you? And- I, yeah, that happened to me with, um, uh, what's that? The Game of Thrones. Game yeah. of Thrones. And yeah. then, then, then I wrote and I was like, oh, I've just missed this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And which drive to survive? I'm like, am I going to watch something from like, you know, previous years? No, I think you'd... you'd- I in should. In your industry, you should Professionally, I should yeah. probably. Yeah. <laughs> but no, so I think, you know, we've seen stuff like game set match. Um, you know, a lot of the individual clubs now will have uh, docos, right? The, Following um, them for a season. Ryan Reynolds, what's the... The Wrexham. Yeah, yeah. welcome to Wrexham. But there's been AFL clubs and NRL clubs have basically doco series for them for the year. Um, 
So I think that's been a real positive development, just realizing that these aren't just athletes, they're kind of characters and you need to think about ways to sort of project them as mm. such. And sorry, just to jump in, like even now you look at the, um, I'm not sure if this even flows into that, but you look at the social media yeah. and just even the um, profile of players that, you know, internally like Bailey Smith, for example, in the AFL and uh, Reese Walsh, yes, was it? Yeah. yeah, in like... I've learned of this guy. I don't watch any league at all, and I know who Reese Welsh is. Like, yeah. he's, I'm like sort of have a crush on him. Like, he's pretty cool. But the amount that just one person can sort of do for a sport to not just be a good player, but then actually make you watch, make you want to go to games, make you want to buy memberships, all those yeah. sort of things too. It's pretty crazy, which we didn't yeah. have five, ten years ago. Absolutely. And so, <clears throat> you know, again, we're probably slightly behind the US in terms of that. Um, but undoubtedly, things like Instagram here, Twitter, you know, it's basically opened up athletes to us in a way that we didn't have before, which has been incredible, I think, um, at that elite level in particular. Um, you know, and I suppose then the other really positive thing, I think, obviously, has been the growth of, of women's sport mm. and... You know, I think I think the AFL gets probably more credit than it deserves. If I can say something controversial on Please this front, do. we love. Um, uh, I say that in the context of the fact that there was a W League in, in football long before, yeah. um, long that you know WBBL long before that, right? But undoubtedly, where they do deserve credit is that there's no doubt in my mind there wouldn't be an NRLW. If there was an AFL, if there wasn't an AFLW, they basically had no plans to do this, and then they realised their major competitor was about to do this really significant thing, and then they got on their got off their backside and created an NRLW. So, where where there probably does deserve to be some credit is that it probably helped catalyse the broader sport category mm. in a way that previously the W League hadn't and and WBBL probably hadn't. So they, there is probably some credit due on that front in terms of expanding the overall women's sport genre, mm. and we've seen it a little bit with. The Matildas now. And so Matildas, the big question was, you know, they've had this amazing tournament, but then it's going to finish. Then what happens, right? Does it just revert back to what it was before? Does something fundamentally change? And I have to admit, as a professional, I kind of thought it would just revert back to being what it was before. You know, they'd come and there'd be some fanfare whenever the Matildas came, but it otherwise wouldn't change that much. Mm. But what we've actually seen is a pretty big uptick in women's sport in lots of sports. And I think that really comes back to the recognition of uh, the Matilda effect. So whether it's, you know, A-League women, whether it's AFLW, whether it's the NRLW, I think all women's sport has sort of benefited from the halo that yep. the Matilda's created. So For sure. Well, it comes back to that, like that notion of like rising, uh, rising tide raises all ships. And like, yep. even if uh, there was people doing it, no matter if it's AFL league, Matilda's coming in, it's just participating and bringing it up everywhere. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, that that's a difficult thing to achieve. Mm. I, I don't think there's been anything like the Matilda's effect, at least since the Sydney Olympics. Um, what do you think that came to do with as well? Like, is it was it the media? Was it the broadcast deal? Was it the social media sort of... Mm. Like, what was... What made it so successful in your eyes? I actually well? think it's the complete opposite, yeah. right? So I, Matil uh, the the media has generally not been super kind to football, or soccer in this country. Mm -hmm. um, if if anything, they've been a suppressor rather than a you know a promoter of of, of football. Um, and actually, I think the success of the Matildas really was community driven. So some of the crowds they were getting for games, even pre-World Cup in the few years before, you know, they were getting 20,000 people to games, you know, across, you know, Newcastle Stadium in mm. Sydney. You know, so they were already at the crest of being quite a popular, loved team before the World Cup. Yeah. Now, this comes back to, I guess, the variability of sport, right? They lose that game. Was it uh, Canada? If they if they lose that group stage game to Canada, they get knocked out of the tournament. 
everything that happens after that probably doesn't happen. Um, but undoubtedly, by the time of that final against England, you know, the whole country was really behind them. And I don't really think it was media driven. I think it was more almost word of mouth in the old fashioned sense. You know, it genuinely had water cooler moments. You talk to your peer at work oh, yeah. on the Zoom. <laughs> You're right. It actually it very much was like that, wasn't it? It's like, well, this was already planned. And because those deals and TVs are obviously planned yeah. years and months in advance when the deals are done. Yeah. So like what they were doing was already there. It actually was just a cultural sort of shift by the like community of watching, getting around it. Like I remember we're at a game. It must have been... I can't, it was Carlton, Melbourne, and it, I can't remember what round it would have been, but there was more people inside, like, watching the TVs yeah. than watching the game of footy. That's right. And the AFL does not give oxygen to other sports unless they absolutely have to. Yeah. Right? And it, it couldn't not. That's that right. Game, yeah. The lesser of two... So, you know, someone asked me about this, and I said, well, realistically, the lesser of two evils for them was to get on the bandwagon and support them. Yeah. Because to not would have just looked really petty... You know, there was criticism that they released their draw the same day as a big Socceroos game. Um, I think it was during the World Cup or something like that. So they are, I guess, a bit of a target for criticism, the AFL, sometimes. Um, so, you know, they had to get behind them. The whole country got behind them. You know, I tried to do a little study because what's crazy is there's no way of knowing what the true audi- national audience was of that game because it was on seven, but then there were live sites, like formal live sites. Four people watching in TV. Or, That's right. Yeah. Then there were lots of people watching in groups. Then you had Optus. It was you know, simulcast on Optus um, Sport, which doesn't get measured by TV ratings. So there was no way of truly knowing what the national audience was. So I did a bit of a study the next day while, while it was hot to ask people how they watched. And my estimate, the TV estimate nationally was 6.5 million. My estimate, including all the live sites and Optus Sport, was about 11.5 million. So 11.5 million in a country of 25. And this is only the adults, right? Yeah. So 11.5 million adults out of whatever it is, about 18 million adults. People are working, right? Like people work night shifts or people in hospitals, ambos, whatever it might be, right? So the stat, it was basically more than two thirds of the available breathing adults in this country were watching this game. And this is like, comes back to even we sort of measure our analytics too. It's like, that that's people that watched, right? Yeah. And then you think, well, look at the snippets that were posted on Instagram, TikTok, like that went viral that people saw the post on social yeah. media as well like they're all impressions and they're still people's eyeballs seeing that stuff as well yeah which just shows how you know big it was absolutely but then you come back to the a-league and they're you know the crowds aren't fantastic yeah. right so converting it back into <clears throat> domestic support is the forever challenge of football in this country so from our discussion today then like maybe this turns into one of the the negatives i'm not sure if that did you have anything in mind for that i think probably one of the biggest negatives really, I guess, is around getting kids to participate, right? Yeah. And I think this is like a broader cultural challenge, like two-thirds, I, I, I don't remember the exact stat, but it's about two-thirds of kids are obese or overweight or obese, should I say, and, you know, and adults as well. And, you know, the the real perverse outcome is that we have more sport available than ever. And, you know, we can watch more than we ever have, right? We, we have better access. You know, if you want to figure out where you can play sport, it's probably easier than ever. So the accessibility of sport has never been better. But actually, our health outcomes are still getting worse. Mm. So it's kind of, yeah, a bit of a tragic scenario, right? We have all this physical activity available to us. But unfortunately, we're still kind of going backwards on, on health outcomes. So is that like participation or, or just in like health outcomes? General, in gen- just yeah. general health outcomes yeah. um, are not necessarily improving, despite, you know, sport being one way we can maintain our health. That's really um, interesting. 
Uh, okay. Well, let me leave that with me for a bit. Please. I'll, I'll think about it. Um, is it worth talking about coming into sports as well? Just like the differences of like um, pathways. So yeah. I spoke about obviously Oz kick, but then like that way to become a professional sport and then fall to not fall, but then go to like a second tier competition playing locally. So for example, you know, you go through AFL, NAB league, go to the draft. Mm. And if you don't make AFL, you can go to VFL and local football. But mm. in soccer, I have no idea how it works. So like, yeah. you know, do you sign to a team? Like what's the sort of pathway that that looks like? Mm. Um, is it actually achievable for a lot of people? Is there hindrances to get involved in it? And then you look at league as well, which still rattles me to this day, but there's no draft. Yeah. It's all about like signing players up. Well, it's funny because for me, the draft rattles me as a northern yeah, okay. because I just look at this situation and I talk about it with my students in class. I'm like, imagine if when you graduate this degree, you just go into a draft and you might end up in WA if you want to work in this career. Mm. You know, for me, that is the that is the hard thing to fathom is that we just force 18-year-olds to surrender where they live and they just get sent wherever they're told. Um, and, you know, one of the one of the great beauties in rugby league, if you think about the Johns brothers, Andrew Johns, Matty Johns, Newcastle Knights, a very famous yep. duo, you know, they were Newcastle kids through and through. So when they won a premiership for their, for their hometown team, I think that resonates in a way authentically that I think the AFL loses by mm. forcing kids to go wherever they're drafted. Um, you do get it, though, with the... Um the zone, so like Queensland, Sydney-based, yes. that's the only way you'd get it. But yeah, you're right in terms of like, you know, if you grew up in Collingwood, you, that doesn't mean you're going to play for the yeah. Pies. And, you know, there's the father-son rule and yeah. all that, which sort of mitigates a little bit. But, you know, I know if I was an elite athlete and I desperately wanted to play for Richmond and I got sent to, you know, Carlton instead, like, you know, it's, it's an intriguing one. And mm. it comes back to the big cultural differences, right, between North and South. Does um, that... Um, does that though, like for me, I look at that in a way that the AFL always trying to make things um, even and that yeah. like even piece of like, you know, you go to the draft and you can trade players and how that sort of works. So there's like that sort of equality version of the AFL, mm. like there's salary caps, there's budgets now, like soft caps that you have to spend out of. Is that the same in sort of soccer and um and league like do they have yeah. soft caps that teams can only spend the same amounts yeah so it is really interesting right and so there's there's a salary cap in the nrl as well as a league um and rugby union every single sport is slightly different right so i'm not going to try put us down deep in the weeds here but what's really interesting with the afl draft is it probably you know the the time horizon of going from success you know from the bottom to the top is probably longer right because you need to trade away picks that might develop over time or you know if you get emergency picks obviously these are 18 19 year olds in the draft who are going to need time to, yeah. to to improve right so the time horizon from getting from the bottom to the top i think is longer in afl and when you're at the top you can probably stay up there for a bit longer by nature of the way the drafting works uh in rugby league, because all you have is a salary cap, right? You have $10 million to spend per year. How you spend it is your choice, right? So if you're at the bottom and you are willing to drop $1.5 million on the best player in the league, you can do that yeah. if you want. There's only 12 players as well. So There's uh, 13 on the field, 17 in the game, and squads of 30. Okay. So there's a lot that, that money goes a lot further than it does in in footy you know like what like those right. players can impact a, a team a lot more so it's like easier to exactly yeah. like if you get like a, a gun half kind of the equivalent of a mid but i think a like half, a fullback yeah uh, they will have more influence on the outcome than any one player in afl 
And so in what you see in league is a lot more moving up and down quickly, right? Because your salary cap can get out of whack or you can fix it quite quickly and you can bounce up and down the ladder a lot more than in mm-hmm. AFL. And overall, they've ended up, the two leagues have ended up in similar positions, right? In terms of uh, recycling teams in and out of the eight um, whilst having dominant teams kind of at the top. You know, soccer is a really interesting one as well because soccer is obviously the international game. And so they have a whole bunch of unique dimensions that the other codes don't. You know, Adelaide United basically um, had a, this gun kid who's signed with a German club Saw now that. for a record transfer yeah. fee, right? So that's very novel to them. And so a lot of people in A-League world talk about the fact that their point of difference in terms of making money isn't necessarily about getting 40,000 people like the AFL. It's about developing juniors who they can sell to Europe. So did Adelaide United make they make that money. Yes. So because he was contracted to them and then they the con- contract kind of gets bought out. How much did, would Adelaide United have made out of that? Gosh, I don't recall the exact figures, um, but it, it was a record. A, a lot of 1.7 million. I think I saw that number float around. I might get pillared if that's wrong. but yeah. um, around that. So yeah. Th- that's, that's a, a lot of money for an A-League club to sort of cop that's right. from one player. Um, yeah. So, you know, their model can work quite differently around just developing local kids um to go overseas because fundamentally you know success for the a-league isn't the same as success for the afl nrl right because you're never going to have the best athletes here yeah the best you can hope for is to develop really great kids who stick around for a few years you see the first couple years of their development and then hopefully they become superstars and so what's really interesting with the matildas coming back to that is we used to have basically the strongest women's soccer league in the world when it was the w league now all the girls are are going to yeah, you know, you, you know, Liverpool and, yeah. and you know, wherever they might go. Chelsea for Sam Kerr. So, um, you know, so on one hand, that's bad for us, right? Because we used to be able to see uh, Sam Kerr play for Perth Glory. And even when W League wasn't broadcast, there was a stat that like 20% of the personalized jerseys in Perth had Kerr on it, even though they didn't technically offer women's personalization on the jerseys. So, yes, it was great when we had them all here, but the industry's grown. Very interesting. Um, and that's where rugby, rugby union has struggled, is that we used to have the strongest rugby union competition in the world. The world has globalized, and now England and France have really strong competitions, so we actually lose a lot of our best players to yep. overseas. So even though the Wallabies are super successful from a country sort of standpoint, and I don't know how good they are, but obviously like they, I see them. <laughs> you haven't watched them Yeah, they, they suck years. now. They suck. <laughs> I, 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 does George Gregan still play? Uh, plays touch. I saw okay, him play good. touch. Yeah, no, I like him. Um, well, historically, they have a, a good team, but now a lot of those players go and play in England and France. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, Rugby Union and Cricket Australia are similar in terms of having this kind of federation top-down model yeah. where the best 20-odd or whatever it will be will be centrally contracted by the national body. By being contracted at the top, they're obliged to stay in Australia to play with a domestic team. Um, and if they forego that, they can go to France, but then they might not... Well, they won't probably play for the Wallabies if they go over on that money. So really? um, they can typically earn about a million plus if they go play in France or England. Um, your best Wallabies are probably earning similar money, but you know, if you're slightly below the best, yeah. that's when the incentive... To go over there would be better. And that's where New Zealand has even bigger problems than we do, right? Because New Zealand, if they were a state of Australia, would be about the size of Queensland economically. Um, so they're not obviously a huge country. Best and one of the best, like, you know, rugby teams in the world. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but economically, you know, a lot of their players are getting poached to the Northern Hemisphere. Wow. That's um, super interesting. What is this, uh, the golden decade coming up? I've seen um, people talking about it, but... um. 
obviously I know, but I'm just going to get yeah, the information of off you. So, <laughs> so, you know, we've got this incredible decade of sport up to 2032, which will obviously culminate with the Brisbane Olympics, mm. which, as I mentioned, our third Olympics, which is and a third Olympics at a different place in Australia. Like that, again, just speaks to how unique our landscape is here. That rattled me just as well off the top. There was uh, 20 questions. And I only got to ask one of them after that, but I couldn't believe how many Olympics we've had compared to countries bigger than us. And also the fact that with our country being the size it is, I always look at the medals, you know, like the talent. Yeah. Like we're a super competitive country. I'm like, fucking, you, That's know, right. you just want England and beat England in the US. But compared to our size and you think about all our incredible athletes, and I know there's EPL players and NFL players aren't competing in the athletics, but you're like, fuck, if we had yeah. some more participants here, we could really give this a nudge. This is where, you know, there's no one subjective way to say which country is the best athletically, yeah. right? But you look at where we go in terms of the medal count, at least in the Summer Olympics, because we pretend the winter one doesn't really exist. Uh, Don't worry about it. (laughs) Scotty James. (laughs) Um, Our old Bradbury. Um, So, you know, you look at our medal count in Summer Olympics, right? We we overproduce in that, which is incredible, mostly due to the water sports, right? Like a crazy amount of our medals come from the water. And even more broadly, right? Like canoeing, Jess Fox, Mm. sailing, um, diving as well. So we do incredible in the Olympics. You know, we've just won a Cricket World Cup against a country that's multiples, multiples bigger than us. I can't divide 25 million by 1.5 billion, but, you know, we've just won a Cricket World Cup. Even That's though, incredible. You know, so, and, you know, we were, we were happy with that, but you saw how unhappy India was with their loss and you could see how much more it meant to them than for them than to us. So, you know, we've won a Cricket World Cup, you know, we've won Rugby World Cups, um, you know, we've we've produced tennis champions. So, you know, if you if you zoom out, and that's, you know, after the people we've lost to rugby league and AFL, mm-hmm. right? There are lots of elite juniors who basically have to make a choice. Look at Will Sutherland, you know, could have been an AFL player, could have been a cricketer. I think Burgoyne was a basketballer as well before mm-hmm. he chose AFL. Um, and then you obviously got heaps of great basketballers too. So as a country, we overproduce athletes and overperform, which is incredible. Um, and that's got to do with our sports system, like we talked about earlier. If you if you have a really good sports system where there's opportunities to play, you'll overproduce your athletes. But if we zoom out beyond the Olympics itself, you know we've got two, we've got a men's and women's rugby world cup, we've got a netball world cup, you know we've had the women's football world cup. So. We've had this, we are in the midst of this decade of sport that is going to create so many opportunities. Um, And the thing about sport events is it's not just necessarily about what happens on the field. Um, If we think about Brisbane, there's going to be lots of infrastructure development. They're going to rebuild the Gabba, for instance. Um, It creates permanent jobs in sport. So it's, it's just a really exciting time to be in sport more broadly because of the chance to work on these events. And this is not even, you know, well, it actually is, but like, you know, being at Deakin as well, I couldn't believe how big you guys are in terms of sports education and like getting there and actually getting a, a career in sport. Yeah, you know, it's unbelievable. We were very lucky that we were basically one of the first to create a sport management program in about 1990. And, you know, having that 30 odd years of, of having built a program for industry, especially in Melbourne, right? Being in the sport capital, as much as it hurts me to say as a Sydney sider, you do you do see the sport culture down here really strongly. Because so, you guys like have other things to do on the, the beach. You go to the beach. Yeah, yeah. We, don't, we don't need that. And, you know, incidentally, um, you know, there's flat land here. So one of, if, if you're interested in a bit of theory, um, one of the big reasons sport developed here so much more strongly was because there was more available flat land. Mm-hmm. So the MCG got built several decades before the SCG you know the the race course as well uh, all to do with the fact that melbourne just had available flat land and so again people here probably don't 
really appreciate just how great it is to be able to walk to the G or go to Etihad. Whereas in Sydney, you know, we've got dispersed stadiums all over the place, um, and that affects people's ability to go. Um, but yeah, you know, it's it's a it's a great program, and you know, it's an exciting decade ahead in terms of sport. And I think, you know, the whole country stands to benefit from the economic impact of these events. But certainly in the sport industry, there's going to be heaps of opportunities. If you were looking into just generally curious here, like if you were looking at uh, like a young uh, male female now looking to get into like a sports career and there was sort of like a angle to get in or a really growing space that's mm. got a lot of opportunity and, and mm. to, you know, have a career in sport. Where, what, like, facet or what sport, mm. where would you actually go and do? What, what do you think the roles would be? Well, you made a great point, firstly, which I want to shout out to, is that increasingly we're seeing an even better... We were always a pretty good gender balance. Uh, you know, peop, sport is not as male-centric as the stereotype implies. Mm. Um, in some sports individually, of course, but overall sport is not as male-centric as the stereotype. And certainly, even despite that, we're seeing you know, a greater proportion of women come into our programs and you know, seeing the opportunity to actually be involved in sport, which is fantastic. You know, sport sport has so many different opportunities, right? When when I talk to, you know, kids about what they want to do, some love being on the field to play and you'd know about this better than most, right? Like some kids love the idea of working more with the sports science where they're strapping on the GPSs onto the, the athletes, checking their lactates, looking at their rest and recovery, mm-hmm. you know, working out the programs on the field itself. And for people who don't like sitting in offices or feel a bit restless, that's an incredible job, right? If you love sport, to be able to be part of the the team that actually just gets the team on the field. Um, for those more interested in business, which which is me, um, my background, you know, I think the most exciting area of work is around sort of social media and digital media mm. in sport. You know, we kind of talked about it earlier. You know, the, in individual clubs, there are lots of roles around content curation and social media management, um, and that is so important so important to a club now to basically basically be developing content that keeps their fans engaged so it's not just about watching a game on Saturday it's about seeing content throughout the week it's about keeping in touch with your fans in the off season by telling them stories about the club so I think you know if we go back 30 40 years ago you know our teams basically just played a game on the weekend you read it in the news and then you waited till the next weekend. Mm. Whereas now with these new roles around social media management and sort of sport marketing, you know, it's about basically keeping st- sport in the news and keeping fans engaged, you know, all year round. Well, yeah, like you're speaking to us, that's like exactly what we're trying to do is just bring as much content, get it out as much as possible, which which is a really good point. One other point I was going to make um, on the sports science sort of stuff, which is obviously now you talk about it, like all the incredible work you're doing at Deakin, with how big that sort of sports program is, but all the there's so many people that when I was playing footy in our high performance um, teams, there's like probably five or six just to the top of my mind that I've sort of stayed connected with that are now working in the US or in mm. um, the UK, and it just shows like they used to go over and do like these exposés about you know how to manage a team and how to get the best out of the athletes, and these are you know Australian um, high performance managers would go over and they'd be like fuck. You're, you should be here and now they're working for like Patriots Boston Celtics yeah. um, all these incredible teams in uh, in the US which just shows how high perform like how good our high performance is 100% I, I tell this to my students all the time is that you know we might be at the end of the earth down here and feel relatively removed from what's going on but we are a net exporter of sport talent 
and that's both on the field but also off the field. You know, who are the two two of the most influential people in sport, modern sport history? Kerry Packer, in some ways, revolutionising cricket. And then Rupert Murdoch, um, you know, basically takes, you know, pay TV into the US and England, <laughs> for better and worse in some ways, um, and really revolutionises sport media. And that's a guy from Adelaide um, who went over there and, and did that. And so, you know, we, we were first in market, creating sport management degrees, creating sport professionals in 1990. And a lot of those people have ended up overseas and not just in sports science but running some of the big media companies in the US for instance so we're a hundred percent a net exporter and that's probably one of the other benefits of working in sport you know you you might start here but you might end up you know in Switzerland yeah UK wherever you might want to go I want to go to Switzerland That'd be fun. We'll, me and Darcy, we'll, we'll do that next year. Save your dollars. Um, yeah, literally. Hunter, it's been incredible today. Hey, to finish up, I was thinking, I haven't um, queued you on this at all, but I loved your stat at the start about Tasmania doing the vote. Like, that was unbelievable. Have you got any other weird stats like that that you could leave us with? And I, know I actually I have a great one. I haven't given you many much notice. I so have a really good one. Go for it. So, um, not many people know about this. I, I'm reticent to spill the beans, but I think there's a great idea in here if you know people with some spare cash. But basically, there was this sport called universal football. Have you heard of it? No. Okay. So, basically, at about like 19, 1910-ish, um, rugby leagues just formed, 1908 in Australia. Uh, rugby league was formed by these entrepreneurs, right? And so this entrepreneur, JJ Giltonen, looks at the scenario and says, well, we're really popular up here in the north, and there's this other sport down in the south that's really popular. He meets with the guys who are running Australian rules football mm-hmm. and proposes to merge, at, I'll call it AFL, just for simple shorthand. Yep. He, he goes to the AFL people and says, let's merge rugby league and AFL into one sport and call it universal football. Now... We can go into the weeds, but basically it was like a big, like a rectangular field on a bigger AFL field. Is it sort of like, I'm looking it up now. Yeah, Universal Football was a name given to a proposed hybrid of sport of Aussie rules and rugby league proposed at a different time between 1908 and 1933 as a potential national football code to be played throughout Australia and New Zealand. And what's wild about this, right? That's, That's crazy. What is wild is basically the VFL had signed up and so basically you literally had like richmond collingwood and all the original vfl clubs say yes we're in on the merger so it wasn't just like a chat like basically vfl had signed up and basically they were waiting for new south wales rugby league to have ratified at their meeting which was a formality because the vfl had signed up and because vfl had signed up they'd, they had the votes from the rest of the afl constituencies to do it and basically um the New South Wales Rugby League were keen to do it and it was a goer and they'd even played a couple versions they'd trialled a few versions where they'd removed bouncing but then like there were still goals to be kicked so they'd started the hybridisation process and the, the only reason it didn't happen is because World War One started if World War One had started even just two years later they basically were in the season one trial when World War One started and had World War One been even a year later we might all be playing one national game with Richmond Tigers versus South Sydney Rabbitohs. That is unbelievable. Yeah. So you think about how big AFL is here and how big NRL is up there and imagine it was combined into one. It's a fantastic stat. Yeah. That's a really good stat. I don't think we can top that. 
I think we're gonna finish. I think we're gonna finish on that, mate. That's super. I can't believe that that could have been a thing. What would the what would the rules have been though? It was basically like imagine as big a rectangular field as you could get on an AFL field. Yeah. Um, and you couldn't bounce it, but you could still kick for goals. So right. you were still like running in and tackling, um, but then you were trying to kick goals. And handballing, no, no throwing. It was, it was no handballing. So it, a lot of people were critical that it looked a lot more like league than it did Aussie rules. Yeah, okay. But I think if it if it existed today, it would play more like AFL. Even the strategy, the of evolution win- and stuff of it. Well, the strategy of winning, I think, would have ended up looking more like AFL, even though the rules kind of looked more likely. We'll get a game going. How about Literally, that? Yeah. We'll, so is that your thing? If we got some cash, we start up our own league. If you tell, if you told me that you could basically have like. Victoria versus New South Wales in a game of universal football at, you know, Geelong Stadium. Get Gary Ablett okay. to come along. Let's talk about this. Well, uh, Maybe we leave this out. It's exciting. <laughs> it's our next venture. Um, Hunter, mate, thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate all your knowledge today. And it's been awesome to learn. There's um, There's been a heap in there about um, the different codes. And I think, as you said, we can be so, not uh, you know, I suppose naive to what's happening when you're not in the game that you're in. Biggest thing I learned today, well, besides universal football and the Tasmanian stat, was be a generalist over an expert in a sport. So, play as many sports. This is for Max, my protege, my son. He's going to be going to have to sign him up to a few more things tonight for 20, sort of 30. And send him to Deacon as well. Send him to Deacon as well, definitely. Thank you so much. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. KO's got you covered for this footy season with every game of every round live and ad break free during play. AFL, here we go. Carlton versus Melbourne with no ad breaks during play. That is going to be an absolute banger. Last time these two uh, got together, well, not the last time, when I was there, I kicked three. Freo versus Swans, live with no ad breaks during play, exclusive in Victoria. And the Hawks versus Saints, live with no ad breaks during play, is going to be an absolute blockbuster. It's a must win for both of these teams. And don't forget the NBA playoffs. Gee whiz, they are going off at the moment. So many big games to mention, and they will be absolutely enthralling. Watch every game live with both Eastern and Western conferences live with ESPN on KO. There's absolutely plenty of room for everyone, so get on board with KO. Now also available on Hubble.